The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I'd invite you, if you would, to turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3. Luke, chapter 3. As you're turning your pages in your Bible to Luke, I want to mention to you that next Sunday morning we'll observe the Lord's Supper. So uh, come and, and be prepared next week to gather around the Lord's table as a part of our worship and uh, enjoy the Lord's Supper together. Just wanted to make you aware of that. Uh, Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse one. We'll read down to verse 6 this morning, and uh, we'll, we'll stop there. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being the governor of Judea, and Her- Herod being the tetrarch of Galilee, <clears throat> and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, te- tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So word of the Lord for us this morning. Let's pray. God, you're gracious and you're kind and you're merciful. You are a God who forgives sin. A God who is slow to anger, quick to forgive You're a God who is gracious and kind to your people. You're a God who didn't leave us in our sin, but brought salvation in in just the right moment of human history. You sent your only begotten son into the world to live among us, to be perfectly righteous, what we could never do, and ultimately to die on a cross, shedding his blood for our sins. And you've offered us a way to, to be forgiven, to that we might simply repent and turn away from our sinful ways and turn to you by faith, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and trust our lives to him. You'll forgive our sin, give us eternal life. You'll save us. We celebrate that salvation this morning. And as we look to your word and we give attention to one of the greatest men who's ever lived, we pray that his life and his message would ring clear and loud and true today as it did in his day. And that we might hear it and understand it and respond to it. For it is your gospel, your good news for sinful men, that there's a way to be saved. We celebrate that this morning. We give thanks to you for your word. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open our hearts and our eyes and our minds to see and to understand what it is you have to say to us this morning through your word. We pray these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Well, two weeks ago on Sunday morning after church, I got schooled up by a five-year-old in some very important matters. I got schooled up in the ways of roly-poly. Now, you may or may not understand what roly-polies are. I was completely ignorant to what roly-polies are um, until two weeks ago after church when I was speaking with the Loma family. I'm not sure if they're here this morning or not, but their five-year-old, uh, Henley Joy, uh, was, was there, and, and we were chatting, and I was just trying to make small talk with her. 
Um, and uh, I, don't, I don't chat with five-year-olds every day, so it was a little awkward. But I just asked her, hey, you know, what's going on? What's new in, in your world? And she looked at me with the clearest eyes and said, well, I can do roly-polies. And I said, you can. That's amazing. Can you explain to me what is a roly-poly? I don't know what a roly-poly is. She commenced to, to demonstrate for me what a roly-poly is. And she, she sort of um, got on the floor. I'm not going to do it for you this morning. But uh, I'll, I'll give you the general idea. You, you kind of bend forward. You put your head on the ground. And then you just sort of tumble, you know, a full, what I would have called a somersault, I guess, at some point in my life. Or tumbling. It's apparently now called a roly-poly, which she demonstrated with, uh, with great skill. And uh, I was amazed. I said to her, I said, well, let me ask you a question. Do you think I could do one of those? And she looked at me real closely. And she said, no. <laughs> she said, no. And I said, you're right. You're right. I, I probably can't do one of those. I'm pretty big, and I might injure myself, and, and it probably wouldn't be wise and again, she's a, uh, she looked at me so, so seriously. She said, and you're old. <laughs> now, it's hard to argue with a five-year-old, you know, when they're telling the painful truth in some ways. You're old. And I said, well, I guess compared to you, that's very true also. Um, can't argue that point. And uh, because I'm big and because I'm old, I, I might just hurt myself. To which she replied, again, so straight-faced, you should do yoga. You should do yoga. You should really do some yoga. And I, I just, I couldn't help but just smile, you know. Uh, I walked away from that conversation with Henley just uh, laughing inside. I thought about it all throughout the day. Just the honesty uh, with which she spoke, the clarity, the directness, the courage. And I, I just walked away from her thinking, man, it's going to be fun to see what happens to this girl as she grows up. It's going to be fun to watch. She's going to be something when she gets a little bit older. Uh, it's going to be a fun ride for uh, Nick and Liana. Uh, and I wonder what it's going to be like when she grows up. Uh, by the way, uh, Henley Joy's having uh, very serious spinal surgery this week. So you might remember to, you might write her name down in your notes there and remember to pray for her uh, and, and their family this week. Uh, but I, I left that conversation thinking, this, is, this girl is something else. I, it's going to be amazing to see what she's going to be when she grows up. But it's going to be something. She's just too sharp at five years old for it to be nothing. And, and that's precisely the question that we were left with about John the last time Luke has talked about him in the Gospel of Luke. Which would have been back in verse 66 of chapter 1. Which simply says, all who heard them laid them up. Uh, these are words in their hearts saying what then will this child be for the hand of the Lord was with him was the last thing Luke had to say about John until chapter 3 was we're left with this this thought what's going to become of this kid there's something pretty remarkable about him and he's going to be something special he's going to be something great what will he become there's something different about him the hand of the Lord is upon him. Now, from that point to chapter uh, 3, verse 1, where John is a full-grown adult, we don't have any real information uh, about him. We don't know much about his growing up or his childhood. We don't know where he grew up. We don't know what he was like. Uh, we really don't know much of anything. We'll find out later we know somewhat about where, where he grew up. In some re respects, we can sort of isolate that. Um, but we don't know much about him. We just are left with this question hanging in the air. What will become of this kid? What's going to become of him? He's going to be something. The Lord's with him. But let's wait and see. And then in chapter 3, we're transported forward in time to a grown man who emerges decades later down the road. And he's reintroduced to us by Luke. And he begins to do this by sort of uh, laying a setting for us. And I'll just make this note. Again, you watch how Luke deals with John in comparison to Jesus. It's very different than how Matthew, Mark, and John do. 
Luke intertwines from beginning to end the lives of Jesus and John. You'll, you've noticed that probably as we've been working through this. And he goes back and forth. Jesus, John shows the intertwining of their two ministries. And it's, it's no different here. But here in chapter 3, the sun is going to kind of set on John's ministry as far as Luke is concerned. Uh, we're going to find out what we know about him. And then he's not going to be mentioned again until chapter 7 where Jesus is going to refer back to him just briefly. But really what we get and what we know about John is going to come here in chapter 3, and that's going to be the end of it. Because if you were sort of looking at this as a movie, uh, Luke is turning the camera toward John for just a moment, and then the camera is going to move permanently back to Jesus, who's going to be front and center, the main character on the stage, if you will, for the rest of Luke's gospel. And so we'll spend a few weeks here looking at at the, the ministry of John the Baptist. And so Luke sets this up for us by giving us a, a time stamp in verses 1 through 2 where he says in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being the governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee. And then he mentions some others along the way there. And Luke, we've noted along the way, is a great historian, so he's establishing here for us, at least in one sense, a very clear historical time stamp. He, he wants us to know that this is not, a, again, a made-up story. This isn't some Greek fable. This isn't some fantasy. That is, it isn't some sort of a mythological story that was made up to, have a, to, to have a, you know, teach a moral lesson. But this is actual events that he's recording that happened in actual moments in human history that align with what's going on in the broader world around, in case you were wondering. And so he names for us here a number of leaders, both political and religious, that were in power at the time that these events take place. And he mentions them, really starting with the one farthest in proximity to John, and then sort of getting closer. Um, just a, a quick sort of sketch of who these people are. Looking first at the political leaders, he mentions first here Tiberius Caesar. Tiberius Caesar was emperor of the Roman Empire at the time that John comes onto the scene. He had succeeded Caesar Augustus, who was the emperor prior to him, and uh, he reigns from somewhere around 14 AD to about 37 is the reign of Tiberius uh, we won't spend much time talking about him other than to say you can, it's fascinating to read about some of these people and their lives and their reigns. They were largely uh, uh, very, very interesting folks in a variety of ways. But his reign was marked by all sorts of suspicion and paranoia and, and bad things taking place in the empire. A commentator by the name of Green writes this about the latter years of Tiberius Caesar. He says, following personal tragedy, his mental health declined so that those final years have been characterized as a period of pure terror. So at the end of, of Tiberius' reign, his mental health declines and his leadership declines uh, in step with that. And it has an effect all throughout the empire. Uh, but he's the, he's the Roman emperor in the time in which uh, John comes onto the scene. He then moves into to another name, a man by the name of Pontius Pilate, probably a more familiar name to you because he appears throughout the gospel record, particularly toward the end of, of the gospel uh, record, the life of the ministry of Jesus around his arrest and crucifixion. Pontius Pilate becomes a, a major player in the story. Uh, he was appointed by Tiberius to be the governor over the area of the empire called Judea. So you'll hear this area of Judea in a map in a little while uh, you'll get a sense for where that is. But again, Pontius Pilate, although a governor, uh, a, a ruler over a smaller area, uh, also was not a very nice guy. Green also com com comments on uh, Pilate. He says this. He says his administration was marked by briberies, insults, robberies, outrages, wanton injuries, frequent executions without trial, and endless savage ferocity. It's a lot of big words that just really says that he was not a good dude. He was a pretty bad character, and that was reflected in the way that he led Judea. He goes on to mention to us Herod, the Tetrarch of Galilee. He's also known as Herod Antipas. You may see him referred to that way. Uh, Herod the Great died in, in 4 AD, and he had no son that was worthy or capable, one or the other, maybe both, of ruling his entire kingdom. So what happened was they split the area up into, into three large blocks of land, three tetrarchies, if you will. And they were subdivided among his sons, Archelaus, Antipas, and Philip. And Antipas got the area of Galilee and Perea, which if you were sort of looking at the map... Um, 
I put the map way at the back of my PowerPoint presentation. Sorry about that, but we'll get to it later. But Galilee, if you're looking up near the Sea of Galilee, Galilee's up to the left, on your side to the left, and Perea is just down to the right. These are areas that, the, that you hear Jesus going through all the time, areas where John is going to, to go through as well. Uh, and then the areas of Judea, Samaria, and Idumea are under the, the rule of Archelaus. Well, they were at least for a little while. Yeah, there you go. So Galilee is up at the top, and Perea, uh, you can see there, and then Samaria and Judea uh, were under the rule of Archelaus. But he only ruled for like two years and was deposed. He didn't last very long. Um, and then Roman governors are sort of given that land to, uh, to sort of rule. But Herod Antipas comes back into the story again later when Jesus comes onto the scene. He's going to become an important player, particularly towards the end. And he is the one who is primarily responsible, we'll find here in just a, a few weeks, uh, for killing John the Baptist or having him beheaded. Uh, so these are all pol political leaders that are uh, at the time that Luke wants us to remember. There are some others that he mentions there that are really more incidental and don't really warrant much comment by us. But there are two other names in there that are important when he moves toward the religious leaders. He mentions to us two high priests, one by the name of Annas and the other by the name of Caiaphas. Annas was the high priest in, in, uh, uh, in the temple from 6 to 15 A.D., um, so you know that at this point, when John comes on the scene, we're further down the road, somewhere around 28 AD or so, that John comes on the road. So, so Annas is not there anymore. He got deposed by one of the political leaders at the time. He got deposed and was replaced by other relatives. And ultimately, by the time of John, it's his son-in-law, Caiaphas, who is the high priest now. But Annas is still on the scene. He's still there. He's still got all sorts of influence in the religious system. He, in fact, is, you know, kind of like the Wizard of Oz, the, 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 the guy behind the curtain, so to speak. He's not the high priest out front, but he's the one pulling the strings uh, behind the scenes. And Caiaphas is the man that's out front. And so, uh, although there's only one uh, literal high priest at a time, uh, Luke mentions for us here both Annas and Caiaphas because he wants us to know that they're both important figures in the religious establishment. Uh, Chuck Swindoll uh, says this of Annas. He says, essentially, he was the mafia godfather of the foremost crime family in the capital city. I like that. It's, it's true. That's about what Annas was. Annas was a, a, a shrewd and corrupt and greedy man who was the, also the leader of the religion of Judaism at the time, the high priest. Uh, his main source of income came from the temple, and he got money two ways in the temple. He got a cut of all of the sales of sacrificial animals at the temple. So if you know what goes on at the temple, primarily they're killing animals and sacrificing them. And they had come up with this system where they had passed this, this wonderful law or wonderful rule where the only animals that could be sacrificed in the temple were the ones that were purchased there at the temple. They were the only ones clean enough to be able to be used for sacrifice, right? And he gets a cut of all the ones sold at the temple. You get the, you get the gig, right? There's nothing like political leaders who set up the system to benefit themselves financially, right? We don't know anything about that. Nothing like that happens in our day. It's a foreign concept to us, but it did happen in the first century with people like Annas. Uh, he also got a, a cut of all the fees charged by the money changers who were working there in the temple. And again, the rule was set up that the only money you could use, the only currency you could use in the temple was Jewish currency. So all the travelers who came from other places had to do what? They had to change their money into currency, and there was a fee charge for that. Annas got a cut of that fee, and you can imagine what the fee was like, right? It was, it was, like, a, it was like buying a... a uh, a Coke at Disney World, um, you know, anywhere else it costs you a dollar, there it costs, you know, 10 or whatever. That's how it works. They've got a corner on the market, right? Um, you have no choice but to go to them and use their service. And again, we don't know anything, anything like that in our days. But again, this was how he made his income. And, and it, was such a, it was such a shady and corrupt business that Jesus is later going to deal with this and address it in a very visible sort of a way, right? When he comes into the temple and he throws the, the money changers' tables upside down and runs everybody out of there because of the corruption. But that's what's going on. And Annas is the high priest. And Caiaphas is, is benefiting from this as well, his son-in-law. And that's what's going on in the leadership of, of 
the religion of the day, if you will. Uh, Caiaphas was high priest, 18 to 36 AD, so it's right during this time, and uh, he's no better than Annas, and he becomes a key player later on. Now the question we, we want to ask is, why is Luke meticulous about this here? Why does Luke include all of this? Matthew doesn't include it. Mark doesn't include it. John doesn't include all of these names of people. Why does, why does Luke think that this is an important thing for us to mention? Well, I, I, I suspect there's a couple of things. I think first and foremost, I'm glad you asked the question, by the way. It lets me know you're engaged. That these, at least several of these, the first four, or not the first four, but four of the ones mentioned all become very important players later in the gospel. And it's sort of a foreshadowing. He wants you to know who they are because they're going to come back into the story later on. Pilate, Herod, Caiaphas, Annas, all these players come back. But I think there's a secondary thing that Luke is after here. Luke wants us to understand exactly what kind of a time and day it is when John comes onto the scene. He wants us to have some sense for what's going on in the world, if you will, at the time. What are the times like? What are the days like when John shows up on the scene? And he wants us to understand by mentioning the names of these people, anybody who knew of them would have understood exactly what he was communicating, that he was saying that this was a time of, of social turmoil and a time of political and economic chaos. That's what was going on under the leadership of these people. It was social turmoil and it was political and economic chaos. And that's all what's happening. And it's right into the mix of that kind of a season, that kind of a time that the word of the Lord comes to John. It's right in the midst of that. If you remember, it's been over how long? 400 years since the word of the Lord has been heard in Israel, since God has spoken to his people through a prophet, since, since any new voice of the Lord has spoken, it's been over four centuries now. And, and when does God choose to speak? When does he break his silence? Well, he breaks it in a time when everything in society is bleak, when, when there's corruption and there's chaos all around, where religion has sort of gone into the tank of corruption, where the religious leaders are completely apostate, where socially and politically and economically in the, in the, in the area it's chaotic and it seems dark and it seems hopeless. It's right into the mix of that that God breaks his silence and he speaks and it's into that time that the word of the Lord came to John the son of Zechariah John the son of Zechariah we've already looked at John's miraculous birth you remember we talked about how he was born to Zechariah and Elizabeth this, this couple that has, was up in age a barren couple who had given up all hope of being able to have children. Uh, Elizabeth was, was dealing with the disgrace of being barren in a culture where that was seen as a sign of, of dark sinfulness. And, and in the mix of all of that, God does this miraculous thing for this couple, this priest, and, and, and causes Elizabeth to, to, to become pregnant and to give birth to John at, at an old age. And and, and John is born in this miraculous fashion and, and there's this celebration in Zechariah's song and him going mute and deaf and all of those things we've looked at. But from that point on, we don't know anything else about him. We don't know anything other than he grew up in Zechariah and Elizabeth, or Zechariah's and Elizabeth's home. Um, he, he, it's, it seems that he spent much of his life out in the wilderness. We'll talk about the wilderness in, in a bit. Um, and people speculate there's no way to actually prove it, but because... Zechariah and Elizabeth were, were, were old when he was conceived, that it's possible, maybe even likely, that they died early in his life, and he went out in the wilderness and grew up there sort of on his own. Uh, we can't prove that. There's nothing definitive that says that, but it's speculate, speculatory and, and certainly potential. Uh, but what's necessary to know about John is not what happened between then and now. What's important to know about John is what Luke records for us here. And by the way, John's ministry is recorded by all the gospel writers. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all talk about John, this John, and his ministry in some way, shape, or form. If you're familiar with the gospels, there aren't a lot of things that are common to all the gospels. There are not a lot of people and events apart from the, the, main, the main sort of themes of the gospel of Jesus itself and his life and ministry that are common to all of them. But John and his ministry is one of those things. And uh, so it's clear that he's a very important figure. Now, Luke's account is very different from the other gospel writers. Luke doesn't mention Elijah in any way directly in relation to, 
to him, the other gospel writers do. He doesn't mention anything about his dress or his diet, which the other gospel writers do. And he doesn't mention anything about his martyrdom, uh, as the other gospel writers do. But he does talk about him, and he does say some things that are very important for us. Later, Jesus is going to make an incredible statement in Luke's gospel about John. If you were to flip your, in your Bible a few pages over to Luke chapter 7, verse 28, you'll find Jesus speaking. And it's there that he's referencing John. And he says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Now pause for a minute and think about that statement coming from the lips of our Lord. Among those born of women, who does that include? Pretty much everybody, right? Everybody. If you know someone born a different way, uh, let me know. But I don't know of any. He was the greatest. The greatest. There is none greater than John. Not Abraham, not Moses, not David, not Solomon, not the prophets. Those were all pretty great individuals in the Old Testament. And here Jesus says, among them all, John stands head and shoulders above them. He is the greatest born of women, of a woman, at that point in time. There's a remarkable statement to come from Jesus' mouth about John. So whatever we say about John, we will certainly undersell who he is and his level of importance. Jesus understood who he was and how critical his ministry was. And he states it. And it's recorded for us there in Luke chapter 7. Well, you might say, well, if he's the greatest man, if he's the greatest man that's ever lived, he, he must have been really something. I mean, he must, have, he must have lived in a decadent home. He must have had the, the latest, hippest fashions. He must have been extravagantly wealthy. I mean, in fact, he must have eaten the best foods imaginable, right? Isn't that what all the greatest people do? Isn't that what marks greatness? At least in our culture, that's what happens, right? The people that our culture says are great, they do those things. They live in extravagant homes. They dress in the latest fashions. They have a bank account filled with all sorts of, of currency. They eat at the fanciest restaurants and so forth. But John's not doing any of that. In fact, you're going to find that John is completely countercultural. He is absolutely anti-establishment. He doesn't do anything the way the world does it. He doesn't measure greatness any, and he doesn't, he doesn't act out of greatness in the way the world does in any way, shape, or form. If you would uh, look at, at Matthew chapter 3, verse 4, because even though Luke doesn't include this, I want to mention it. He does tell us about John's appearance and his diet. He says, John wore a, a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. And that's a really strange sort of a description of a human being, Right? Wearing camels, hair, garments, and eating locusts and honey. And in case you're wondering, even in the first century, that isn't normal. That wasn't what people did in general. In fact, nobody did that. But John did that. And you might ask the question, well, what's the deal with that? Well, there's a few deals with that. Number one, it's, it's fairly practical. If you're living in the wilderness, which is where he was living, there was fairly easy access to, to camels and to camel stuff. So there's a practical side of it. There's a simplistic side of it, too. It's rather simplistic. I mean, he never has to worry about what he's going to wear, and he never has to worry about what he's going to eat. How much of your life is spent worrying about what you're going to wear and what you're going to eat? John never wondered about that. He never spent two seconds wondering about what he was going to wear and what he's going to eat because he wore the same thing and he ate the same thing all the time. It was never a distraction. It was a very simplistic life that he lived. But it also contrasted with the political and religious establishment of his day, and that's important. John wanted to distance himself as much as he could from the popular religious leaders of his day. He didn't want to look anything like them. The Pharisees who pranced around in Jerusalem wore luxurious, fancy garments. You would have known them by what they were wearing. It was luxurious and expensive, and it identified them as important people wearing expensive clothes. And John wanted to distance himself as far away from that as he could so he wore garments that were the, the polar opposite of that, camel's hair. Basically, camel's hair put together into, made into string that you could weave fabric out of. Um, just a, 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 the, the opposite of soft and cushy clothing. It was rough and scratchy, but it was warm. But there was one other reason why John chose this attire. 
And it's important to understand this because if you go back to 2 Kings chapter 1, you'll find that this is actually a fashion statement that's repeating itself. Now, we know that fashion comes and goes, right? The things that were cool when old people like me, and thanks Henley Joy, were young, it doesn't work today, right? It's not fashionable. Fashion comes and fashion goes. But however, I have lived long enough now, and this is one of the benefits of being older, to see some of the things that went out, they've come back. Unfortunately, I didn't keep any of them, so I don't have them, so I can't be cool. But this is a fashion trend that goes back a long time. Second Kings chapter 1, verse 8, they answered him. This is speaking of Elijah, the Tishbite. He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. This was the, the, the attire of Elijah, the Old Testament prophet. He was apparently the fashion template for prophets. And so John is identifying with Elijah in the way that he dresses. So this, this wasn't just sort of a random sort of a thing. There were some practical reasons why he dressed that way, but there was also a statement being made about how he related to the religious leaders of his day and a statement about how he associated with the prophets of the Old Testament. And it's clear that the issue here that Luke wants us to understand and the other gospel writers particularly want us to understand is that he stands in direct line of the Old Testament prophets like Elijah. That's who John is. He's the last of the Old Testament prophets. He dressed like Elijah. But he ate locusts and wild honey. Again, you know, wealthy people and people who are great tend to eat extravagant meals. I read about a guy this week. You see this? I don't know how well you can see it. I don't know which one of them is, but one of those guys is a YouTuber called Mr. Beast. Has anybody ever heard of Mr. Beast, the YouTuber? Okay, somebody back there. We need the younger generation to help us with, with who these people are. But Mr. Beast, one of those guys in the picture, uh, wrote an article about eating this meal uh, that was a $70,000 pizza. Let that rest on your mind for a minute. $70,000 pizza. It was made by a private chef who only cooks for billionaires. Its base was covered with an ounce of gold and a 10-year-old Parmesan bechamel. The toppings included Japanese beef marinated in $10,000 grape juice, Hudson Valley foie gras seared and flambéed with a $6,000 bottle of apple juice. I mean, what's wrong with Mott's? You get that at... Walmart for a buck fifty or something. It's finished off with four thousand dollars worth of white truffle shavings flown in especially from Italy and uh, had sixteen thousand dollars worth of albino caviar, the rarest in the world. And of course some more gold leaf and some smoked salt, I guess for seasoning. Seventy thousand dollars for a pizza. I thought this was fascinating. It's a quote from Mr. Beast. He says, quote, I thought it would be gross, but it actually was really good. And that got me thinking, you paid $70,000 for a pizza that you thought would be gross? I don't think it's wise to watch and follow YouTubers. That's all I've got to say about that. $70,000 pizza, Jim. It's not Little Caesars, is it? That wasn't what John was doing. He wasn't living in extravagance like that. John ate locusts and wild honey. Locusts and wild honey doesn't sound very appetizing, but uh, locusts and wild honey. Yeah, I saw that. I thought it was kind of funny. They make a cereal out of it, locusts and wild honey. Fat and protein. Definitely filled with protein, locusts. Um, in Leviticus chapter 11, locusts were the only insect that were permissible to eat for, for Jewish people, oddly enough. And so he wasn't disobeying the law by eating these things. But I don't know about you, it doesn't look very appetizing to me. But uh, they're a good source of protein, and they were plentiful in the wilderness. And so uh, I imagine John found lots of ways to eat locusts, uh, uh, but that's what he ate. Um, he also ate wild honey. Again, easy to come by in the area, sweet and flavorful. You know, in my mind, probably helped the locusts slide down a little bit, you know, with the honey. Just kind of cover it in honey, and you could eat anything with that. But that's what he ate. I mean, it was, again, a statement. It was just a contrast. The, the religious leaders were living in opulence, and John was living in very clear simplicity. He wanted no association with what was going on in Judaism in Jerusalem. And we're told that that's where he was, and that's what he was looking like. But we're given by Luke, back in Luke chapter 3, a sense for his motivation. 
Why does John start to preach? Why does John get out there and do what John ultimately does? Where we're told the answer to that question, his motivation is that the word of the Lord came to John. The word of God came to John. John John did not wake up one day and say, you know, I think I'm going to go out and be a preacher. Or I'm going to go out and make a name for myself. Or I'm going to go out and and establish this broad-based ministry that's going to change the religious landscape of Israel. John was going about his life until the word of God came to him. He isn't strategizing to impact the culture. He's just living life until God speaks to him. And Luke wants us to understand this because we need to know that, that, that John's transition into public ministry is absolutely God-directed. That this is God who's pulling the strings here. This isn't John wanting to be somebody. This isn't John's ambition. This isn't John trying to go out and make a name for himself. What's really happening here is John is the actor who's on center stage, but God is the author of the play, and God is the director of the play, and God is the casting agent of the play. And it's time to mobilize John so the word of God is sent to John. God delivers a message to John, and John goes out and delivers God's message to the people. That was what a prophet did. John's an important person, but this is still God's story. And he's the one that's directing all the movements. This statement also situates John comfortably among the prophets. The word of God came to John. If you were a a Jewish person who knew their Old Testament, or if you're an American Christian who knows your Old Testament, I hope you are, then you may know that this is very familiar language in the Old Testament of the prophets. Isaiah 38.4. In Isaiah 38.4, we see this. Then the word of the Lord did what? It came to Isaiah. Did Isaiah go looking for the word of the Lord? No, the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, and he went out and did his ministry. Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, the words of Jeremiah, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah. Ezekiel 1, 3. Hey, is Ezekiel here this morning? Oh, man. There's a little fella, comes with his father. His name is Ezekiel, and every Sunday he catches me when he's here. He says, when are you going to read a verse from Ezekiel? You guys be my witness, Ezekiel, today. We missed it. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, the priest. Jonah 1.1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. You see this language over and over and over with the prophets. It's the word of the Lord that comes to them. God delivers them a message and commissions them to go out and to preach the message. And that's exactly what John does here. He's the last of the Old Testament prophets to whom the word of the Lord came like this. And his location, Luke tells us, is in the wilderness. Now, when you hear the word wilderness, what do you think of? Mm. Somebody's cheating. They read their Bible. Normally, if you're an American, you think of the wilderness, you think of the woods, right? Trees and the woods. But the wilderness here is actually desert, a dry, desolate sort of a place. It's a, a dry, desolate, mostly rock and sandy sort of rough and uneven desolate kind of a place and that's where that's where he is at the time when the word of the Lord comes to him so he's been there for some time living like this and we don't know how long but for some time he's been there and later we're going to see Jesus go spend about 40 days where he's going to be in the wilderness where he's tempted by Satan right so that's where John already is Again, the main issue here is John is away. He's he's located himself away from all the centers of power, right? He's away in an out-of-the-way sort of a place. He's away from the corruption and sin of the city. He's away from the religious decay in the temple. He's way away from the seats of political power of the leaders. He is way out in the middle of nowhere on purpose in sort of a desolate sort of a place. That is one of the areas around the Jordan where he's going to move to begin to do some of his ministry, his baptism ministry. But prior to that, he's just out in the desolate desert, and that's where he is. Now, church growth experts today would tell John that he's got it all wrong because everybody knows that if you want to set up a good business and a good ministry, right, every, the thing that's most important is location, 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 right? You've got to have the right location, a place where there's lots of foot traffic and where you can get people. But John doesn't care about any of that stuff. John sets up in a place where people are going to have to come out to him. In order to get to him and hear what he has to say, they're going to have to leave everything behind in order to hear him. And that's going to fit very well with his message because his message is 
It's going to be spiritually, you need to leave everything that you know behind and repent of it and turn and prepare your hearts for the Messiah. So this physical movement away from everything that was important to them is a foreshadowing, really a physical look at what John is going to call them to spiritually when he begins to preach. That's going to be his message. What was his ministry like? We're told in verses 3 through 6. He went into all the region around the Jordan, that area that you just saw, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That area around the Jordan, there are some pictures there. You just saw one of them, but there are some areas right around there. Uh, if you look at this, this, I don't know how well you can see this, but you see the Sea of Galilee at the top where it says Capernaum and the Dead Sea. The Jordan River runs through there. This picture I wanted you to see because I want you to understand that the Jordan River is in a valley and there are mountains on either side of it. And it's sort of in this valley and it runs through the middle of there. And it's all along that region where John does his ministry. And it's in the Jordan River there where he where he baptizes. And so you can sort of see on this one here, he starts down in the bottom left uh, in Karim over there is about the area where he starts. And then he comes over to an area that John is going to mention in the Gospel of John, Bethany beyond the Jordan, where he starts baptizing. And then it's up and down in that region where he does his ministry. John the Baptist lived in that area. Have any of you been to, the, to Israel, to the Holy Land? Some of you have been. Some of you went with me about a decade, 12 years ago or so, Pat and Al and a few others. Um, uh, if you ever get a chance to go, you, I, I would highly advise it. Uh, it. It really makes your Bible come alive in living color when you can see some of these places and locations and regions. But this is where John was. He was out uh, doing his ministry around the Jordan, up and down that river there. And his ministry was characterized by mainly two things. He, he, was, he was doing a baptism of repentance, and he was preparing the way for Jesus. That is what Luke wants to emphasize to us here. He was preparing the way. It was, a, it was an illustration pulled out of Isaiah chapter 40, which Luke quotes here, um, which was a, really just a, an, an image that everybody knew in the ancient days because when a, a king would go to visit a city, he would send people ahead of him to prepare the way for his arrival. They would come and make sure everybody knew the king was coming and that they were on their P's and Q's. He would go and he would, they would make sure all the roads were level and clear of any debris or hazards so that when the king got there, he could roll in nice and smooth and there wouldn't be any issues along the way for the king's arrival. And that was an illustration that was, that was given in Isaiah chapter 40 of the ministry of the one who was going to come, who was going to prepare the way for the Messiah. The Messiah was going to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and God was going to send one before him who was going to be like that herald for the king who was going to prepare the way, not the roads and not the towns, but the hearts of the people. And this is what Luke identifies John with. In Isaiah chapter 1 through 39, it's all about the judgment of God. In chapter 40 of Isaiah, the whole tone changes of Isaiah's prophecy to a tone of salvation. It changes from judgment to salvation. The salvation of God is coming is the prophecy from Isaiah 40 forward. And here it's associated with John the Baptist. John is the one preparing the way, who's fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah. And he is the one who is actually coming to prepare the way for salvation. The Messiah is coming, and he's bringing with him salvation. People need to be prepared. Their hearts need to be prepared. Their minds need to be prepared. They need to be shaken out of their spiritual lethargy. And they need to be awakened to the reality that what they've got is not where it's at. And John's ministry was all about that, preparing the way for Jesus, preparing people's hearts to receive him, shaking, them, shaking the dust off of their religious life and challenging them on multiple levels in very direct sorts of ways. And the second thing he was about was baptizing. We'll talk about this more next time that we're together. But he was proclaiming a baptism of repentance. The backdrop is hard to understand. We don't really know for sure. In, in Old Testament Israel history, you had ceremonial washings. Have you ever been doing your Bible reading in the Old Testament? You read about washings, all these washings that they had to do, cleansings and washings before they could go in the temple. It had to do with sin, and in order to go, you had to wash your hands and symbolize cleansing yourself of sin in order to be uh, clean in the presence of the Lord and so forth. Some of that may have some some sort of a backdrop here. There were Jewish proselyte baptisms. If you were a Gentile and you wanted to be, identify yourself with Judaism, you had to go through circumcision and you had to go through an immersion baptism. 
in order to identify with Judaism. So that's sort of in the backdrop here. Uh, but John's, John's baptism here is altogether different. There's really no parallel to it anywhere else. He was doing a baptism that was offered not just to Gentile proselytes, but to Jews and to Gentiles alike. And that was what was going to be so scandalous about this baptism of John, is he's going to be calling Jewish people to do what really formerly they thought only Gentiles needed to do because they saw themselves as clean and Gentiles as unclean. And so when John comes to Jewish people and says, you need to be baptized, he's saying to them, you're just as filthy and sinful as any Gentile and you need to repudiate all of your religious activity just as much as the Gentile needs to repudiate his sin. You're no better. You need to be cleansed every bit as much. You can imagine how that was received. But his baptism was tied to repentance, to this change of, change of mind and change of heart, this change of direction. It carries the idea of turning, turning from one thing to the other. And the idea of repentance is turning away from sin and turning toward the Lord Jesus Christ. In this case, Christ hasn't come. So it's a repentance away from sinful lifestyle and a turning toward God and what he's about to do in bringing the Messiah to bear. It's not just a mental belief. It isn't just a remorse for having your sin exposed. It's a complete rejection of a lifestyle and a turning to a new way of life. That's what John was preaching. He's going to flesh this out later in his message the next time we're together, how this fleshes out what repentance looks like in a life. But Jews were trapped in this works-based faith. And John is saying to them, really, you know what, it's not about your traditions. It's not about your rituals. It's not about your sacrifices. It's about your corrupt heart. And you need to repent. You need to repent if you want to be forgiven. It's not Christian baptism. We run into that later in the gospel. It's not Christian baptism, which symbolizes the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, which symbolizes the new birth, that a person's been born again, no, this is a preparatory baptism of John. Just preparing the people, reminding them that they're sinners who need a Savior. Shaking them out of their, of their complacency. Making them ready to receive Jesus who's about to show up on the scene. You know, if you were to turn to John chapter or excuse me, Luke chapter 13, verse 3. Well, verse 1. Listen to this. We'll close with this. There were some present at that very time who told him, this is Jesus is the hymn uh, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices and he answered him do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way no I tell you unless you repent you'll all likewise perish or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem no I tell you but unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. It was interesting. People thought that when bad things happened to you, it was a sign of God's judgment on your sin. So if you happen to be walking along, as some people were, and a tower happened to fall on you, the natural assumption was you must have been a pretty rotten sinner for God to drop a tower on your head and kill you. Or if you were the victim of the evil leader like Pilate who has you murdered that you must have deserved it because you were a sinner and that was the issue being brought to Jesus and Jesus says you know what you're asking the wrong question the question isn't why did a tower fall on these people or why did these people get killed in such a horrible way the real question is why are you still alive because unless you repent you'll perish just like they did and in doing so, he lets us know what was true in John's day and is still true in our day. The only way for a man or a woman to be made right with God and to find forgiveness of their sins is for them to repent, for them to repudiate their life of selfish, sinful living and embrace Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. There is no other way. And just like the people in John's day, just like the people in Jesus' day. That statement is true in our day. Unless you repent, you, just like them, will perish. And it's not just a matter of dying physically. 
but it's a matter of, a, of a, an eternal death, spending an eternity apart from God, paying the penalty for your own sins in a place called hell, which is real. That's what Jesus means when he says you'll perish. The only way to be saved is to turn from your sin, to confess it, admit it, be broken by it and over it, and repudiate it in your life, and embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and his death in your place as the payment for your sins. It's the only way to be saved. If you don't repent, you'll perish. That's the message of John. It's the message of Jesus. It's the message of the gospel, and it always has been. And so I guess it's the best way for us to end this morning is to ask the question, have you repented? Have you turned from your sin and embraced Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? If not, you need to do that right now. You're in danger. Why would you wait? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, uh, we are amazed by this great man, John. We can't even fully grasp his greatness. We, we get the edge of it. We talk about it. We think about it. We imagine what it was like. But he was a remarkable man, and we give thanks for his life and his ministry and his courage to preach a hard message to people who didn't want to hear it any more than people want to hear it today. But we thank you more than that, oh God, that you're a God who forgives sin, that you're a God who responds when his people repent and turn and embrace you by receiving your son Jesus. Lord, I pray this morning, if there are any here who have never repented, never looked themselves in the mirror and admitted they were sinners, confessed that sin, owned it, and repudiated it in their own lives, made the decision to leave that kind of a living, to embrace Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. I pray that right now they would do that. There's no magic words, there's no magic prayer, just a simple sinner in his or her own heart saying, saying to you they turn. You've promised, Lord, that to any who do that, you'll forgive their sin. You'll wipe the slate clean. You'll save their soul. You'll secure their eternity in heaven with you. I pray that you would draw people to yourself this morning, Jesus. And for those who already know you as Lord and Savior, we celebrate the gospel and this message of repentance. Help us not to hide it from a world that desperately needs to hear it. We pray these things in your holy name. Amen.